one way that people can start is even if you live in a huge city where there's all of this gray infrastructure, where there's streets and roads and buildings and um, maybe a stray tree every now and then, um, just remind yourself that you are an integral and important and critical part of the ecology of whatever area that you're in. And that will sort of help you figure out what your role can be. Um, what do you want to do? What do you want to impact? Is it, you know, what's a way that you can start thinking about your role differently? Um, and how can that be an invitation for you to start to make a difference? Even if it's just in one little place, even if it's just in one little thing. Um, but just reminding yourself that you are a part of that ecosystem. The Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Actual Outdoors. They help build beautiful brands that highlight the approachable and authentic parts of outdoor recreation. Said simply, they keep it real. Learn more at actualoutdoors.com. This is a Life in Motion audio experience, a podcast about travel, action sports, culture, and more. What's up and welcome to episode 170 of Life in Motion. I've got Nicole with me from Current Problems. Their mission is to restore and protect the wetlands and waterways of Florida for the well-being of wildlife and community through watershed cleanups, water quality outreach, and education programs. I'm excited to hear her story and what impact they're making down there in Florida. But uh, Nicole, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yes, yes. I'm excited to to connect and you know check out the website and social media and all that stuff. It looks like um, you, you have a really great community going on down there. Uh, and of course, uh, the initiatives that you all are doing to help kind of protect those things that I mentioned. But before we, we get into some of those specific things, um, that current problems, uh, love the name, by the way, um, uh, does let's start with, um, you know, who you are, where are you from, where you grew up, kind of what got you into, um, this, this lifestyle in the first place? Well, I grew up in, uh, Georgia. I spent about 10 years, uh, in, in a town a little bit outside of Atlanta, north, east of Atlanta. Um, and I just have all these memories of when I was younger with my with my younger brother uh, running around in the yard. We used to create these little museums, things that we would find in the yard. And then I would make tickets and <laughs> charge the neighborhood access and my parents and, you know, any, anybody who would come uh, to come see this really strange collection of anything from dried snail shells to rocks that I thought were interesting <laughs> to little mud creations. Uh, and so I just, I had so much fun even then um, noticing and picking up on these just little small things and wanting to bring people's attention to those, um, to those small things under their feet. And then uh, I moved to Florida when I was about 10 and um, basically grew up here. I've been here for 20 years now, and I love this state. And I know what everybody's thinking. Um, how, how could you possibly love Florida? Uh, but it's weirdness is what makes it really endearing. And for the people here who are, you know, Florida natives or, or Florida transfers who really fell in love with it, like me, um, there's a really special culture here. Um, there's a really special interconnectedness um, in all in a lot of the local communities here that I think is really unique. Um, and yes, it's weird and strange most of the time, but uh, we also just love it. So uh, I grew <laughs> up here in, in North Central Florida. Um, this is actually the area where there's a lot of uh, interaction with rivers we have all of the freshwater springs here which are gorgeous um and they 
are, are these big destinations for people. And so it's interesting living in a state where there's so much tourism around you all the time. And there's this uh, interesting connection between uh, the tourism and the local communities and their conservation efforts. And um, so I really fell in love with it early um, when we would visit the rivers and the springs and the beaches. Are, there's nowhere in the state where you're more than 60 minutes away from the beach, uh, from a coastline. And so there's just water around you all the time, even if it's, you know, under your feet in the aquifer. So I really fell in love with it then. And I've gotten to be a part of so many cool uh, organizations and opportunities, you know, throughout uh, the years. And it's sort of led me to this. That, that's awesome. I mean, y- you know, as, uh, you know, kids, you always hear about, you know, the lemonade stand and, you know, hey, I'll, you know, rake your leaves or, 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 uh, pile up your snow or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be a first for me though, hearing, hearing that I kind of, <laughs> I, I, I love that. That's, that's really interesting to me. And of course, you know, you know, once you move to Florida, obviously a little bit, uh, I guess more diverse kind of in, environment as far as the outdoors goes, um, you know, with that, I'm, I'm sure then, you know, where you were, um, in Georgia, but what, I, I guess as, you know, when, when you're a kid doing that stuff, you know, sometimes, you know, kids do things like that out, out of, out of boredom or creativity or whatnot, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, stick with them, I guess, as they get older. Um, what, what was it about? Like, as you know, when, when you moved and then of course, as you got older and got, um, I guess more, uh, aware, I guess, as far as how deep, um, you know, everything is kind of interconnected. Like, what do you think it was that kind of kept your attention and interest in it that long from a kid all the way to, you know, as you were growing up? Well, I really didn't think about that story very much at all until um, a few years into my career, I worked at an organization called Alachua Conservation Trust. It's a land trust here in North Florida. And uh, I was doing one of their, one of their programs called Women in the Woods, you know, encouraging women participation in land management. And uh, the leader of that group, we were driving one day. It's it's six interns in one truck uh, with no AC, windows down, <laughs> running down the road, going from one preserve to another. I'm sure we were, you know, we were doing chainsawing. And so we're covered head to toe in protective gear. Uh, and it's 106 degrees at least. <laughs> so you can imagine the circumstance we were in and also the smell uh in the inside of the cab um but we were running down the road and uh driving from one preserve to the next and the the leader of of the group pulled the truck over like really pretty suddenly and i we all thought you know maybe there was something wrong or maybe something happened and um but she was a botanist and she steps out of the truck says nothing to any of us uh walks you know, a couple feet into the ditch on the side of the road and just sort of sits down on the ground. And I mean, we were disgusting. We, we had already worked four and a half hours. I mean, we were not, you know, this wasn't a point in time where, where this, where any of this made any sense. And no one else in the truck was really paying attention. They're all talking about lunch or whatever. Uh, but I sit there and I watch her and she just sits in this little ditch spot that she picked out. Um, and she takes her phone out. She takes a couple pictures of some flowers that she was sitting near. And then she sits there for a second. And then she gets up, gets back in the truck and says nothing again and just huh. drives and moves forward. And 
I was so blown away by that teeny tiny moment that she probably doesn't remember at all. But it really stuck with me. And I thought, man, when I am in a position where I'm leading other people, I want to be the one who will stop in the middle of everything to appreciate, you know, something like that, to appreciate the small things as a part of the whole of the greater work that we're doing. And so we were doing land management on, you know, some of these preserves and she's sitting there with one flower that was impacted by the work of the conservation that that organization has been doing for 30 years. Uh, And I thought, I really want, I really want to be that person. I want when people look at the work that I do to, to, I want it to feel like that. And then I was reminded of my brother and I making these little mud museums. (laughs) And I thought, oh man, I really actually had that in me. And maybe that's why it sort of comes up to me in my own work. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, really interesting. And not only, you know, her having that appreciation to stop and, and kind of take it all in and, and you know, realizing the work that, that you all were doing impacted, like you said, that that one flower. But for you to sit back and, and observe that and then, you know, take that away from what, you know, most people might seem is, okay, that just happened. Okay, cool. Um but then they have that kind of mental note of, hey, you know, this is this is the appreciation that I want to have and I want to show to kind of help, you know, lead, as you mentioned, once you get in that position is, is pretty cool. I think that something that is often underrated is like the impact of the things that we communicate passively as people who do, you know, conservation or outdoors or, you know, the things that we share and the way that we share it, I think has a bigger impact oftentimes than like when we try to make a big effort and try to communicate something. I think, I think that a lot can be communicated in, um, it it, passively that we are not necessarily intentionally trying to do. I mean, even today I'm, when I tell the story, I don't identify the flower because I don't know what it was. (laughs) (laughs) She She didn't tell me what the flower was. Um, and so from a conservation or an education perspective, I really didn't learn I didn't learn about that flower, um, but I think I learned a heck of a lot more about conservation just from that moment um, than, you know, than, than I might have in a lecture about that flower and the ecology of, of that flower. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And that's, you know, you know, conservation is, is kind of, um, you know, I see it as, as having an appreciation for all these different natural things. And so, you know, I, I feel like that exemplifies or that moment, her appreciating that exemplifies kind of the whole idea around it, which is, which is great. So, so you, so you kind of had that, you know, that, that moment that sort of stuck with you where like, and, and you mentioned, you know, one day when, when I'm a leader, I want to be, you know, have that similar impact on others. So I guess where, like, what, was that like a, like a turning point, I guess, in a, in a sense, or like what, what kind of happened after that as things, um, you know, progressed? That was really my first job out of, after graduating college, uh, I went to the University of North Florida and I studied uh, coastal biology restoration. Um, so coastal restoration, uh, and also applied ethics and philosophy. And I, you know, sort of connected all of those things. And I had done a lot with watershed restoration. I had done a lot with with those kinds of projects, but I moved inland. And so I wasn't working on the coast anymore. And I was really confused about, I mean, inland, you know, for Florida, I moved 60 <laughs> miles inland. <laughs> <I did. laughs> it's different here, it's different here. Um, that's my version of inland. So, but even then I, I wasn't really feeling, I had just spent, you know, 
four years really connecting with these coastal ecosystems and learning about them and everything. And then I moved into a place where I hadn't learned how to identify all of the pine trees that grow in North Central Florida. I was, you know, surrounded by all of these. Um, I was supposed to be a conservationist. I was supposed to be a biologist. And I felt like I really didn't know or understand anything that was immediately around me. And so it was very confusing at that time. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And for me, that was a moment of um, this sort of recognition of, you know, I didn't, I didn't need her to be an expert in that moment. I didn't need her to be, um, she didn't have to identify the plant. Um, I just recognized it as a, as a, a thing that will, that I wanted to be. I, I saw that and I thought, man, it doesn't really matter where I'm at. It doesn't matter if I'm in a truck on the side of the road or if I'm speaking in front of a city council or wherever I'm at, I, I would like people to take that away. And so I thought, well, I'm going to chase that. Then. Yeah, no that 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 makes sense, and it's 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 interesting how kind of the, the small moments kind of change and shift that that perspective um, of kind of you know where you're at versus where you want to be or or whatnot, um, kind of on a, on a moment's notice almost. So, and then so some from from that kind of having that. Um, you know that that crossroads of that understanding of that like where. I, I guess what were kind of the next steps as far as like your conservation journey, as far as, you know, working with, with other organizations or how, how did it kind of um, grow over the years and kind of obviously that, that love for you have grow uh, over the years? So I worked, I worked there for, I think three or four years. Um, and during that time, I also um, helped out some other organizations, some other nonprofits. I led, um, I led and developed education and outreach programs. I worked for a really cool organization called Grades of Green um, that works with students all around the country to develop programs in their own towns and their own cities for sustainability and even in their own schools. Um, and I worked with them on all kinds of things. There was one school that did a waste audit and they learned about all of their waste that's generated in their school. And then they developed a program to uh, minimize or reduce the amount of waste that, that their school was contributing. And then they went as students in elementary school, uh, they went then to the county and gave a presentation to their own county representatives. And I absolutely loved helping out with that. It was amazing. Um, and then I went and spoke in my, in my own hometown here in Gainesville. We passed, uh, uh, the city passed an ordinance uh, eliminating styrofoam and plastic ba bags, you know, a, sta a plastic bag ban. And we've seen these be hugely successful all across the country um, in the states that have implemented this, South Carolina being one of them, Washington, D.C. Um, and so our city passed this ordinance and later the state preempted it so that no city or county could pass a plastic bag ban um, or a styrofoam ban. Uh, in the state. So unfortunately, we've had some barriers to it, but we had it. There was a meeting to discuss the ordinance. Uh, and this was, you know, while I was doing all these other things, I was just interested. I was following, I was following along with this, uh, with a sort of piece of policy that was happening in, in my own home. And I go to this city meeting and um, there were a lot of people who were there for public participation. And a few people got up and presented and spoke. And at one point, this older gentleman from the community got up and spoke. And he said, I don't even know why we're talking about this. I don't know why 
we're having this whole meeting or anything. I don't know why we're focusing on this. There are no whales in Gainesville. And everybody else in the room just kind of laughed him off uh, and just sort of was like, oh, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. But it really stuck with me. Um, and when it was my turn to speak, I, I was a, a few people after him and I sat at the mic for a second and sort of put aside everything I was going to say <laughs> or that I had prepared. And I said, yeah, you know, he's right, though. Um, and so much of our communication about marine debris is about marine debris. And the impact of plastic bags and of styrofoam on the environment is sea turtles and whales and dolphins and things that are not here in north central Florida. And it reminded me of all of the other issues that we have in our state, things like hurricanes, things like um we have a lot of issue on our East Coast with blue-green algae blooms that wipe out, you know, fish populations and create these huge, disgusting algae mats. Um, they're really detrimental to our communities. And then on the West Coast of Florida in the Tampa area, we have red tide blooms, the same kind of thing. But those blooms are generated by pollution that starts in the upstream systems. It starts here in North Central Florida. But when we talk about it, we talk about it as a coastal issue. Oh, well, that's Tampa's problem. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's Miami's problem. That's South Florida's problem. No, it starts right here. And that's why it made a lot of sense to me. I, I really heard him when he said that. I thought, man, I, he's right. We need to change the way that we think about these issues in a state that's a peninsula and, you know, that's so interconnected. All of our water is so interconnected. Um, and how much would our ability to prevent these things change if we just changed our perspective on where we are in the ecology of all of it or where we are in in those issues? Um, and it turned out that in that room was the previous executive director of this organization. And I didn't even know. And so when I applied for this position, um, the executive director of Current Problems, this nonprofit organization, um, she said in the interview, she said, I was in that meeting and I heard what you said. And she said, that's so much of what our work and our, um, that's so much of what we want to do with this work. And so it was really impactful for her to hear me say it, even though I hadn't planned it at all. And I was just <laughs> sort of responding in the moment. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's really interesting. Cause you know, from, from his, his, uh, perspective, you know, whether or not, you know, he was being, uh, intentionally smart, I guess about that or not, you know, that is a good point. You know, if, if you're, if you're trying to advocate for something and make somebody care about something such as, you know, that ban and, and everything else, you know, if there's not a, 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 direct connection per se, you know, people might not that are sort of on the edge of supporting something like that might not care because to, to their point, um, or to your point that you mentioned, you know, well, I'm in the middle of Florida. Why does that matter for, for Tampa or what I do vice versa? But it's almost like rebranding and kind of changing the, the story and the perspective to create that, that personal connection with the, uh, with, with what you're trying to accomplish with what that individual is doing. So they'll care about it. So that's, that's, um, really interesting that you picked up on that, um, you know, during that conversation or that hearing. And then of course, uh, you know, how that, how that worked out in, in meeting with, you know, the, the previous, uh, director of uh, current problems. So, so when you first got started, where, where did you kind of, um, 
or started working with current problems, where, I guess, what did you do there um, before kind of the things as you mentioned now, you know, being the executive director? So when I came in, it was a, a creek organization that had really existed just to clean up local creeks um, around the area and around North Florida. So we were really, you know, our work area was limited to maybe four or five counties in the area. And our primary mission and goal was to uh, engage people in in cleanups and doing debris reduction. And so we would go out and, you know, pick up trash out of out of the waterways <laughs> or uh, clear invasive species. Or uh, we did some plantings to shoreline plantings to um, make sure that we're restoring habitat along the shorelines of these lakes and rivers and creeks around here. So you literally got thrown in uh, to, to the current problems. <laughs> I really did as the only staff member too. I mean, we had no other staff. It was just a part-time executive director at the time. And that's what I got hired into. Or hired as. So, so with that, when you got kind of thrown in that situation, obviously there was already this, um, this, this foundation of, of the organization, um, cleanups, uh, different, uh, outreach, that kind of stuff. How, how was, I guess, that, that transition then from not necessarily having um, worked within the organization prior to being, you know, the head person um, doing that and building the, uh, the relationships? And then as, obviously as that's gone, gone on, you know, how, how has that changed and, and plans to change? Well, when I, when I came in, um, I was very lucky to have inherited a 25-year legacy um, of a really, really grassroots organization who were very interconnected. Um, and so it was really, I, I, f I feel like it was a really beautiful thing um, that, that I had stepped into and felt really lucky from the beginning. I mean, Current Problems was founded in 1993 by a group of artists um, who just paddled on the rivers here and wanted to connect their own recreation with conservation and find a way to do that while building a community around caring for those environments and while also you know engaging their own art and utilizing their own art as um as a piece to increase their uh, increase awareness in in the communities for even you know outside of their own volunteers and outside of their own community um but what i recognized really early on was that we were doing trash cleanups and that was a, a huge majority of our work um, but as I sort of looked for other similar organizations around, I found that we were the only freshwater cleanup organization in the entire Southeast. So wow. not just Florida, but the entire Southeast. We were the only organization focused on cleaning up trash out of freshwater systems. And as a peninsula state, for me, um, that seems really critical um, because, I mean, we know now that over 80% of of marine debris comes from these freshwater systems, is sourced from these freshwater systems. Um, and so from there, I just sort of started thinking, well, what could we do? You know, here's what we have done for 25 years. And this is a really, you know, it was obviously, I, I came in at sort of mid-2019. And so unfortunately, my first full year as executive director was 2020. And yeah. so... Uh, that huge reduction that we had in in volunteer opportunities and, and engagement and, you know, we're a grassroots community organization that couldn't do uh, any of the grassroots community efforts we had been doing for 25 years. Uh, but it did give me the time and the 
sort of isolation that I needed in order to really dig into the heart of our work and see how it could evolve into our what is now our fourth decade of work. Um, and from there, I started reaching out to other organizations that we've partnered with for years. I started looking into, you know, services that we'd provided in the past and maybe, you know, hadn't done in a while or, um, and I really started going to a lot of our partners and saying, okay, you know what we do. What do you need us to do? What do you need? What's missing here? Um, what's, what are the gaps um, that you see and, and how can maybe we create programs for your area that make more sense for you instead of just doing maybe the same programming year after year. Um, and so coming out of COVID, I was able to build a lot of these programs and start to uh, offer people, you know, we, we were one of the first organizations to be able to offer people volunteer opportunities because when you're paddling on a river, you're able to be six feet away. Um, and when you're doing trash cleanup, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, very close to other people. There was, there were ways to do it that were, that were safe. And so starting to engage with our own volunteer community and saying, you know, what do you like about this work? What do you want to see out of this work? Um, what does impact look like for you? I mean, do you really feel like you're making impact here? What would help you feel like you're making impact? What kind of impact would you like to see in this area that maybe we're not seeing? Um, and sort of time and time again, I got this answer that was like, well, I mean, cleanup work is great, but if you're cleaning up the same place year after year, are you really, are you really cleaning it up? Um, and that was a question that really stuck with me. And so I thought, well, Maybe there's a different way to approach this. Uh, and so from you know the last few years, we've been running a, a different model of cleanup. And we've been um, doing a lot of things more like storm debris response. And uh, you know since then, we've removed, I mean, just this year alone, we've removed over 66,000 pounds of trash wow. out of North Florida waterways, which is more than double what we removed in 2019 the year that i came in wow that's i mean that's uh that i mean that's uh impressive number uh you know you wish you did there wasn't that much trash to pick up but the fact that you know yeah. having the community and the volunteers and everybody to kind of rally um behind to to help help those causes um and, and then kind of speaking with or speaking of volunteers how many how many volunteers do do you all work with on a average, I guess, yearly basis? Overall, we've worked with over 22,000 volunteers wow. in 30 years, uh, which is incredible. Uh, most of our events, I would say we have between 20 and 40 volunteers, depending. Um, and then this year, we have worked with over 2,000 volunteers. Wow. Uh, and we've led over, we've led 179 cleanups in just this year alone. So in only eight and a half months out of this year. 179 cleanup efforts. That's, um, that, that's impressive. And, and, you know, I like how, you know, how, how you during, during kind of the downtime with, with COVID and every, everything, you know, figuring out how to kind of, um, reshape what, what those cleanups looked like actually going within those communities and being like, what, what can we actually do besides just saying, this is what we're going to do. Like that collaboration, I feel like is super important probably with, um, the buy overall buy-in with the community as well. And, and figuring out, you know, as you mentioned, like the storm debris and that, and that kind of thing, how, I guess, how are those places, um, you know, are they easily identifiable as far as like the locations to clean up or, you know, even when a storm comes through, depending on how big it is, obviously that's a pretty big, uh, spread. It's not just one little area. So how, how do you kind of identify where, 
where to focus those efforts on in those those volunteers on as well. So we rely hugely. Like I said, we're we're a very small organization. So um, now at this point, it's it's me and I. We have a, a programming director as well. So now we're up to two staff. Um, but even as two staff, we can't drive around everywhere and look for trash. So we rely really heavily, actually, on um, we have a reporting link on our website. It's on our social media. It's everywhere. Um, and we also have gotten that out to land managers. We've gotten that out to parks. We've gotten that out to um, organizations of you know fishers and, and hunters who are out in these wild spaces regularly who can let us know where the trash is collecting if there's a problem area um, so that way we can respond that way so i sort of think about those cleanups as as responses and that would be you know what the hurricane <laughs> response would be as well as like responding to either a dumping or you know a, a disaster or something displacing a bunch of trash or even just storm surge if we get a heavy rain here or i mean this is true for anywhere um, it'll pick up a lot of the street side trash and just sort of put it wherever is downstream, regardless of, of you know, what infrastructure or whatever is down there. It'll, the stormwater does not care. <laughs> so, um, so we respond to events like that. Um, but then also we're able to track those things over time and say, okay, well, we've gotten the same report from the same kind of area three times now in the last year. Uh, after a big storm. So maybe there's a preventative measure we can put upstream. Uh, maybe there's a way we can capture this trash that's making it here after a storm event. What's happening upstream from there that maybe we can come in and, and put something interceptive so that, again, we're not going into the same places year after year and doing the same efforts. Um, how can we actually sustainably clean up somewhere? What, what would it actually mean to keep this from happening again? Yeah. And then, and then to that point, like what are, are, do you have any, any examples of, you know, some of those solutions or whatnot that you've come across? Like you mentioned, you know, so that same spot isn't, you know, constantly a, an area of cleanup where it's kind of more or less resolved, although obviously it can't always be fully resolved, but you know, to, to limit that. Yeah. We, I mean, one thing that's been really interesting about, or that's been really cool about being able to track those things over time is and being able to look at our data over a series of years is that it's very very interesting that you can there are different types of debris in different areas and different systems um and you know when you work on the coast it's like this endless barrage of <laughs> of cups and straws and you know cigarette butts from you don't even know where i mean you're just you're standing on the beach you're looking out in an open ocean bringing in these you know usually small plastic items but you have no idea where they're from or where they've been um but with you know it upstream systems with things like rivers and creeks it's kind of nice to be able to say okay well downstream over here we found you know 15 styrofoam cups and we find tons of styrofoam cups in this location actually year after year according to our data um, what is that telling us about something that's happening you know maybe there's you know, maybe there's a restaurant uh, upstream or something that doesn't have a grate on their storm drain. Can we maybe go talk to that restaurant and say, um, hey, would you be willing and open to either putting another trash can in your parking lot or um, let's talk to the city about getting, you know, a grate on the storm drain or maybe a sign that says, just so you know, this storm drain leads directly to the creek system, which has no filter. 
So anything that's in the street, if it, you know, if it rains here, it's going to come straight into the creek system. Um, and here, a lot of our creek systems and all of our groundwater uh, steeps underground and contributes to this underground series of water, um, this underground network called the aquifer, which is then later our drinking water. And so everything that's in our groundwater is quite literally directly connected to where 80% of Floridians get their drinking water. And so communicating things like that, you know, people might not know that. There's there's almost no reason anybody would <laughs> would know that normally unless someone told them. Um, but things like that can, can make a big difference and, and have an impact. I think it's also interesting that we've been able to identify and expose some gaps um, in certain areas where we work of, so for example, in this one, um, in this one county that we work in, we were fine. I was looking at the data and I saw that year after year, we were collecting tires and tires and tires and tires. And I thought, I was like, there's something else happening here. You know, it's not just that this county in particular has a high proclivity for dumping tires. I don't think that's what's happening is this is just a county where people love dumping tires. (laughs) I don't think that's what's happening. Um, But it turned out that that county had a particularly high disposal fee for tires. And also Uh. that that information wasn't necessarily communicated to the public. So there was a gap in you know, in education. So people in that area just didn't know. And if um, it was also, it's also a rural county. And so in a lot of these rural counties, what we find with dumping and with trash is that it's very, very rarely a matter of people really mindlessly just leaving refrigerators in sinkholes. Um, And I think that what we have found is that it's much more often that people just don't know what to do at the end of the life of their objects. And in the last few years, what we've seen is this, um, is this progression in production of anything and everything um, where things are being designed not to last intentionally. And so refrigerators are lasting maybe two years. Um, but if I asked you, Jeremy, right now, do you know what to do when your fridge dies and how much it's going to cost you to get rid of it. Uh, I know there's a recycling plant around here that I would assume I'd have to call them how much, how much that would cost. I didn't even know it would cost anything. Uh, so I guess not really. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's true for most people. I don't think most people know what to do with a lot of their waste. Um, in a lot of counties, even phones are considered hazardous waste. And I don't think a lot of people would consider their phones hazardous waste, um, you know, at the end of their, when you get a new phone or whatever, uh, at the end of life of those objects. And so it's been really interesting to find the areas in which there's these patterns of, you know, oh, well, that's just the trash sinkhole. What are you talking about? That's where everybody puts everything. That's what we've always done. Um, And I don't think that that's the same issue as some of the intentional pollution that we see in other places. I, I think that those are separate issues. Um, and so it's been really good for us to be able to counteract some of these other organizations whose messaging is really negative and really focused on shame, um, on shaming people. You know, like everybody's seen them, the anti-litterers campaigns and anti-litter bug and that whole thing. Um, but actually, a lot of the science shows that it's not often littering anymore. Um, oftentimes 
there are, like I said, there are gaps in education or there are gaps in, um, there are issues with our, our own waste disposal methods that just have not caught up with the amount of production that we are seeing now, especially with, you know, styrofoam and single use plastics. Yeah, no. And that, that, that your, your point there definitely makes sense. You know, the being intentional versus not intentional, you know, if, if, if you don't know, or like rural areas or or whatnot, where there's, um, you know, space around, you know, you, you might feel like, well, I'll just keep it in the backyard or, you know, I don't know, whatever they do, but not knowing that those resources are available, they're not doing it out of, Oh, I hate the environment. Uh, they're doing it because that's what they think they're due. And maybe they think by putting it there, they're preventing it from, you know, harming the environment when they're obviously, um, that's not the case, but to be able to kind of, um, you know, recognize that and, and figure that out in a way that you said where it's not shaming people. So they don't feel, you know, like they're bad people when they're, they don't really, um, that's not the case. Um, but it's so it's, it's interesting how kind of deep it goes. Being scared of the consequences too. I mean, there's so many, um, what I've seen is, is that there's a lot of, especially at the state and city and county level, um, they they really don't have the resources to to solve the problem, and they just they they keep getting inundated year after year, and so they go with a punitive approach, which is you know in a lot of these areas you'll see um, citations and threat you know you know fines threatened uh, against litterers and things, and so I would be terrified. Um, I wouldn't you know if I didn't know how much it costs to dump something or to take something to the dump, or you know, if I thought maybe when I got there, there would be a massive fine or something, you know, I, I would understand that reticence. Um, so in that area, in that, in that county, what we, what we did was instead of doing tire cleanup, we did a, we helped out and we partnered with the, with the county and some of the other local counties that do have um, hazardous waste collection centers, because this county did not. And so they have a, a hazardous waste collection day and we went to that hazardous waste collection day we partnered with them and provided tire recycling free tire recycling and drop off and we collected 437 <laughs> tires well that's a and lot and we're of tires. able to recycle them and i'm telling you the enthusiasm of the people who showed up and this is why i really don't believe in in the in these in that sort of a shame narrative because when you offer the resources and when you say, you know, come and drop off what you have with absolutely no penalty, with no shame, with no anything. I mean, they dropped off 11,000 pounds of hazardous waste. Goodness um, gracious. And it was anything from paint cans to, um, you know, a lot of those areas, there were a lot of contractors and um, people doing repair and everything and who had, you know, things like putty that was left over from construction jobs and they didn't know what to do with it or. Um, you know, things like that. And we collected all of it and were able to dis- not only dispose of it proper- properly, um, but that's also a county that is right on the line of a river. And so if any of that stuff had been sitting and rusting and rotting and degrading away into the yards of those people, it was literally degrading directly into the aquifer and directly into the river system. Yeah. And that's, and, and not only like you mentioned, it's them giving the opportunity to get rid of that stuff one off their property. Cause I'm sure, you know, it wasn't, uh, it's not necessarily a, a something fun to look at, but 
also the the probably the chance to educate them like you said hey this is going straight into your drinking water this is doing that this is ending up this way like did you know last year we picked up all these tires this far downstream because up here and like but doing it like in a in an educational way like you said not a not a you're you're the worst person ever way but to create that understanding which i'm sure kind of um enlighten that community um, and then the communities, other communities that you do that to kind of be more thoughtful and mindful and know what resources are available to them next time they have something like that that needs to be tossed. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's incredible the the change in action that you see in communities that have historically felt, you know, either isolated or shamed uh, by <laughs> engaging in something. You know, if, if they're if they're nervous about even engaging in 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 a topic any anywhere in environmentalism if it's climate change if it's um, pollution if it's water quality if it's you know anything like that um it's incredible what just a simple invitation can do um and just say no this is a this is yours you live here you live by a river you live in a state with water actually water quality is yours to participate in um, <laughs> and you can and you should and here's ways that we can help you know it's a very yeah. different uh, message than I think that a lot of these communities receive. Yeah, a- absolutely, and it's and it's so um, it's so interesting, kind of hear like that, like that glimpse of the process. You know, you mentioned because you know when you know some people think of oh a cleanup, this you know that's great. They're going out there, they're cleaning up for a day, and then that's it. But like you just kind of took the top back as far as hey, you know when we're always at the same spot every year, keeping these reports at the same spot or whatnot like it goes past just a cleanup. Like, what do we do? Like what, what, what path do we follow to stop it? Like at the source in a sense. So I, I think it's really interesting one, how much that goes into it, but two, how, how you're able to f- figure that out and follow kind of the trails. Cause I'm sure it's not always necessarily the, the most easiest or obvious thing. Plus you got to work <laughs> with, uh, you know, cities and counties and, and local governments and that kind of stuff too, which I'm sure has its own um, challenges sometimes. So I think that's uh, ho- hopefully should give people a greater understanding and appreciation of organizations, uh, not only yours, but others as well that, hey, there's there's it's not just, hey, let's let's grab some bags and some gloves and, and throw some trash and get rid of it um, you know, out of the waterway. It's, it's deeper <laughs> than that. That's my hope. That's what <laughs> I that's what I hope is true about our work. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I know we covered a lot of what you're, um, what you all have c- currently been doing and kind of explaining and kind of going into detail what some of those processes look like, but what, um, is, is there anything that we haven't covered as far as some of the initiatives that you have, or maybe plans that you have moving into the future, um, that would be, uh, insightful? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we'd really like to get more, uh, engaged and involved with is one of the things that I've been trying to to develop and create intentionally is um, is to help it, a way to help out communities with hurricane debris response because there when hurricanes come through and in the past few years I mean we've just seen such a huge increase not only in the number of hurricanes that are impacting Florida but also the intensity and I mean even this year California was hit with a hurricane yeah. and we saw sort of the the all of the chaos that came after that because it's an area that's not used to having that problem um and so here in florida the there are two different uh communities really like here there are the areas that get hit with these year after year after year 
And so in those communities, they have a setup. They know exactly what to do. Okay, well, you know, if, if the streets get blocked off by debris, we know to call this person and this person will come in and handle it and it'll take them exactly two days to do it. And then they'll take it here to this location where it'll be sorted and separated and things will get to where they need to go. Uh, and then that's sort of the process. That's how it'll go. Um, and people know that there's a hotline that they can report if there's, you know, if there's debris. Um, but in areas that aren't used to getting hit, so in this past week, we've been doing a lot of work with uh, Hurricane Adalia, who hit two weeks ago. Um, and it really hit in an area that, one, a majority of our work happens in this area. 60% of our organization's work happens in this one river shed. This is the Suwannee River Basin that runs from Valdosta, Georgia, and it runs south, and then it curves west and ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and it also, you know, it has a... a a few different rivers that flow into it and you know make up this whole this whole watershed but it's where we do a majority of our work and it's not used to getting hit by hurricanes and this year Adalia went right over the basin and even went up into Georgia and just sort of sat there for a while um, and so these areas that are not used to having this kind of level of destruction um, have a they don't have that system they don't have that network of response that those other areas do um, but we've found that the community really comes together in an area like that, where there's a lot more community resources and a lot more um, engagement, involvement and dedication to, you know, the businesses and the fisheries and, um, you know, the recreation. Obviously, in Florida, recreation and tourism is a massive part of our, of our coastal communities. Um, so people who are fishing guides, people who are kayaking guides, people who you know, really rely on the health of the water and access to water as their means of income. Um, and we see that those communities really come together, but uh, they also don't necessarily have the resources ready, even in an emergency, to be able to respond to something like that. So the debris cleanup is ongoing. Um, and even just this past week, we completed a, a project um, that was Hurricane Ian debris related which wow. was last year. It was a whole year ago. And so these debris cleanup efforts take a really long time. Um, and the way that it has been is that usually there's like a company that gets contracted and they come in and they clean it all up and they um, just kind of take it and it costs millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, and so what I would like to see is some, you know, community involvement. And we see some volunteer community cleanup efforts in, in a lot of these communities. And I've been sort of, you know, my approach, which is to pay attention to what's already happening and what's already there. Um, and I've called a couple of people who have been, um, you know, put in place as hurricane response coordinators in these areas, emergency response coordinators. And oftentimes they're communicating, they're uh, coordinating these cleanup efforts without really having any, I mean, they don't, they don't have the, the supplies. They don't know how to coordinate volunteers like that. And, so for me, what I would really like to be able to offer is and leverage is a statewide network of community organizations that are already doing that work and that already have ties to volunteer groups that already know how to coordinate. Um, you know, if I see a picture of some overhead debris that's, you know, clogging up a river basin, <laughs> I have a whole storage unit of stuff that I know exactly where to put and who to put where and how many people we're going to need and what equipment we're going to need um, and how long it'll take. and what we'll need as far as on the other side of it, how can we, what we need in terms of, you know, recycling or repurposing some of that debris so that it's not all just going to the landfill. Um, and so uh, what I would love to see and what I've started coordinating um, 
is a network so that local cities and counties can lean on those networks um, of supplies that are already there. And so that that way, um, when people want to contribute resources, they can do so um, in, you know, in other means. So maybe instead of donating grabbers and trash bags, um, th those funds and those resources can instead go to housing um, and helping, you know, provide food for people who, who've been displaced um, and let the, the organizations like ours um, who are doing this work um, come in and help coordinate those things with our expertise and our resources. Yeah, I think, and, you know, and like you said, kind of, you know, uh, there's a lot of coordinating, it sounds like, to go along with that, but, you know, to, to take those steps and, and address those issues so that when things like that do happen, everybody's kind of uh, prepared and, and, you know, like you said, you know exactly how to go go about it and what you need and who you need and everything. So that's, um, that's really awesome. And especially, you know, obviously your location being in, in Florida, you know, makes a lot of sense to kind of, uh, create that network. Um, so that's, that's really awesome. So, um, so I guess to, to that point, you know, as, as you continue to, um, obviously, uh, grow, grow, grow out these different programs, uh, and obviously build upon what, what is already there. Um, what I think it's interesting. There's there's a lot of times in this conversation that you've brought up just you just kind of being attentive to what somebody says, how somebody acts, whatever that might be towards um, cleanups or something about the environment or whatever that might be. And you obviously had the um, the 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 notice to say, hey, this is more of a perspective problem um, and and an understanding education problem. For for different communities, you know, maybe they're in the in the Midwest, or maybe they're farther up the East Coast, or wherever they're at. Um, that maybe there's something like this going on. There, you know, cleanups and and whatnot. But where where do you see like the I guess the easiest way to help change that perspective for I guess like the general public within their area, so that they do create that connection most or much like you mentioned um, with that one. Um, hearing or whatnot that you did where uh, the gentleman was like, oh, there's no, there's no whales right here. So why does that matter? How do, how do you take those steps to do that without um, making them feel bad at the same, at the same time, especially if it's something new per se within their community? Well, I think that uh, something that that gentleman was communicating was this, a larger pattern that we're seeing, um, especially, I, I guess I can just speak as in the U.S. and generally in this country. Um, is that we forget that we are an integral part of the ecology all around us. And so, <laughs> yes, there's no whales in Gainesville, but when that gentleman spoke, he was no more than 110 miles away from one, at least two, maybe four. <laughs> um, and that's really, on a global scale, not that big of a distance. He's part of a community with even those whales on the coast that he doesn't identify with. Um, and so I think that one way that people can start is even if you live in a huge city where there's all of this gray infrastructure, where there's streets and roads and buildings and um, maybe a stray tree every now and then, um, just remind yourself that you are an integral and important and critical part of the ecology of whatever area that you're in. And that will sort of help you figure out what your role can be. Um, what do you want to do? What do you want to impact? Is it, you know, 
what's a way that you can start thinking about your role differently? Um, and how can that be an invitation for you to start to make a difference? Even if it's just in one little place, even if it's just in one little thing. Um, but just reminding yourself that you are a part of that ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that. And especially, you know, I, I, I like that you brought up the example of being in a city to understand that as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, especially with organizations like, uh, you know, what, what you're doing and other ones, uh, current problems and whatnot. Um, it's nice, you know, people are making the steps in the right directions, uh, which, which I think is great and kind of having a better realization and understanding of kind of the impact that, that we have, um, on, on our ecosystems as humans and waste and everything else that goes along with that. But, um, to that point, where can people find you online line to um, get involved, volunteer um, if they're in the area or uh, just kind of see where you're up to? You can find us online at currentproblems.org. Uh, we also have Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we communicate a whole lot through Instagram. So that's a good way to find what we've done recently. We, uh, we share videos and pictures of all of our volunteers and also upcoming events that we have. Um, so this month we're actually running an art gallery at a brewery, which is very cool, called Source to Sink, Source to See. And it's sort of a connection of everything I've been talking about today. Um, it's all of these local artists, most of whom have never shown in a gallery before. So this is a awesome. debut for a lot of these artists, which is so cool. And a lot of them are our volunteers. And some of the pieces actually incorporate trash that we oh. found at our cleanups. Um, That's awesome. and so we also have like trash candles available, which are things that we've found in the rivers and creeks and we've turned them into candles. And that's a little fundraiser that we, that we have. Um, so you can find out about stuff that we have coming up there and feel free to reach out to us too with, you know, via any of those platforms. Um, we're always happy to hear from anybody and, uh, yeah. Awesome. Now that that event sounds, uh, really, really awesome. So, uh, hopefully that's a big success for you all, but everyone definitely make sure, uh, check them out online, check out their socials. If you're in the area, uh, definitely see if you can get involved and, and help them out. But Nicole, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, share your story and your journey from, uh, uh, mud museums all the way to the impact that you're now having, um, at a larger scale on the environment. It's really awesome and inspiring. And I wish you all the best of luck as you continue. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life in motion. Until next time.